too bad, Captain. Maybe I can't go home, but neither can you. You're as much a prisoner in time as I am. Bridge to all decks. I'm getting ground to air transmissions for a brand new episode of Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Nance. And I'm Steve Morris, and I am receiving those transmissions, but they are not the ones I expected. They're coming from a different time. A different time. Well, that must mean that we are up to tomorrow is yesterday here on Enterprise Incidents. And I got to say, what a relief. after the last episode we did which was the alternative factor and i gotta say you know even though that was not clearly not the star trek's finest hour i still very very much enjoyed our conversation on an episode that didn't work so now that we can get back to doing a deep dive on an episode that does work and on many levels for many reasons but steve my question for you is Do you have any vivid memories about the first time you saw Captain Christopher beam aboard the Enterprise? I certainly I have no memories of the first time I saw any of these. (laughs) They always just existed. You're you're you have this incredible ability to know where you were when you were at seven years old and what episode was on TV. I have no idea. But. I do know that this was always, it's so interesting how different Star Trek is because this was a fun episode. This was just an episode. I, I, I don't think I can find deep, important meaning in this episode. I think this episode is great. I think it's a lot of fun. And I always, always did. Well, that's interesting because after all these years of seeing Tomorrow's Yesterday, and I got to tell you, what I remember about the first time I saw this episode when I was a kid, a little, little kid, I remember I sat down. It was still when it was on at 7 o'clock on WPHL Channel 17 in Philadelphia. It was before they moved it to 1130 at night. But I remember sitting down you know, in front of the TV, getting ready to watch this episode you know, in the first few seconds are of this uh, Air Force base. And I remember thinking, wait a minute, where the heck is Star Trek? But yep. of course, you know, we realized it was Star Trek. But, you, you know, you mentioned something really interesting. There is, there actually is some depth, uh, unexpected depth to this episode. And after all these years, after rewatching this one a couple hundred times, and that is not an exaggeration, it's always when I rewatch the episodes in preparation for our podcast, Steve, that I immediately see it differently and I think about it differently. And that definitely happened with this episode because Mm. of not only when it was filmed, Mm. but when it takes place. Mm. Well, I can't wait. Maybe. (laughs) I don't know that I do. I cannot wait to hear what what things you discovered on this rewatch. Well, uh, this is an episode that is a landmark because it is the second episode written by Dorothy Fontana, a.k.a. D.C. Fontana, which was the name that she used uh, because at that time in the the mid to late 60s, there weren't a lot of uh, female screenwriters. Uh, So so she used D.C. so people – wouldn't uh, wouldn't know, and it's a shame she had to do that. But this is the second episode that she wrote. The first one being Charlie X, and this is an episode that I think if there's any episode next to Trouble with Tribbles that could be described as delightful, <laughs> this is an episode that is absolutely delightful. I agree. You agree? 
Yeah, absolutely. It's just so much fun. It is definitely fun. And here's the thing, too, is that that this is the first semi-comic episode. Now, we talked before during Shirley and during the Squire of Gothos that there was a lot of a lot of levity, a lot of humor in those episodes. But here's why Tomorrow's Yesterday is a little different. But surely even with the Squire Gothos, especially Squire Gothos, you had a lot of levity, but you had our, our characters, you had the Enterprise crew, they were still playing it straight. Especially in Squire Gothos, you know, you have Trelane, yeah. you have William Campbell, who's clearly having a ball with his, with his uh, playful performance as Trelane. But, you know, Captain Kirk, William Shatner, is playing it pretty straight. In this episode, a lot of our characters, you know, they're really, uh, you know, they're really leaning into the comedy, especially, I have to say, uh, Shatner. Now, this episode was directed by Michael O'Hurley, and it uh, aired on January 26, 1967. It was the 19th episode to air. But when it aired on January 26, 1967, and I didn't realize this until I was prepping for this episode, but Steve, this episode aired the day before the Apollo 1 fire at Cape Canaveral. Oh, wow. That killed astronauts Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger wow. B. Chaffee. Can you imagine you're watching this, this Star Trek episode that takes place in the late 60s? And then the next day, you're reading on the news and you're hearing on the news about about the tragedy of the Apollo one fire. What a, what a, an extreme I to go through. Wow. That really is that. Cause that tragedy and it's so, you know, you hear about it in Apollo 13, you hear about it, you think about it in uh, the right stuff. You like the, it is such a scary, terrible, awful moment, you know, like, Oh, I can't imagine getting up the next day after this episode and seeing that. Yeah, and it was something that that derailed the Apollo program and threatened to cancel it completely. It didn't get off the ground again for more than a year and a half with Apollo 7. But this was uh, the 19th episode to air. It was the 22nd episode to film. And it was filmed for six production days that took place between November 28th and December 5th, 1966. Now, here's the good news about Tomorrow's Yesterday. Actually, there's a lot of good news with this episode, is that the total cost for this episode came out to be $178,629, which means, my friend- We're under budget. We're under budget. (laughs) Yeah. We were under budget by $6,371. The budget at this point per episode was $185,000. So that- was a was a good thing, and the visual effects uh, bill for this episode was eight thousand seven hundred and sixty dollars by the Westheimer Company. The Westheimer Company was brought in to do the special effects after the Howard Anderson Company missed their delivery dates of the shots that they were using with the eleven uh, foot model of the Enterprise. So Westheimer came in; they saved the day, but. But did they? And the reason I asked that question, Steve, is the don't you think the original visual effects they're 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 not that great? No, they're bad. And it was funny because, like as as I said before, I, I watch it with the enhanced effects, and then I go back and watch it with the original effects, and not watch the whole thing, but watch those parts. And I knew it was going to be a rough contrast. They're real bad. They're, yeah, it, it, it is like. 
you know, there's the the Monty Python Holy Grail line where they see the castle and you hear, it's just a model. And it's like, this is so like, looks like a kid's model, you know, that's just sort of stuck in there. It's not, they're not good. But you know what? I got to say that, you know, I, I do like the remastered effects when they went back and redid the, the effects. Most cases, I I do like watching the the newer versions with the new visual effects. But in this particular case with Tomorrow's Yesterday, I feel like this is the one shining example of an episode that was greatly improved by the remastered visual effects. And not just because the, the remastered effects look great, but because the remastered effects actually use real images inspired by photos that were taken by NASA of, of the Earth and of the moon. So when you're seeing the Enterprise orbit the Earth, that's what it would really look like if you saw the USS Enterprise orbiting the Earth. And I, and I just – I love watching this episode yeah. with the new effects because of that reason. So the episode, like I said, was directed by Michael O'Hurley, and this was the only – Star Trek episode he directed. Uh, at that time, back in the 60s, he directed shows like uh, Maverick, 77 Sunset Strip, Mr. Novak, Rawhide, Mission Impossible, also Mannix, Wonderful World of Disney. And he directed an episode of The Lieutenant, which was created sure. and produced by Gene Roddenberry. He is an Emmy nominee for Backstairs at the White House, which was nominated for uh, Outstanding Limited Series. And he I remember f- that series, by the way. I yeah, remember that. that's in I the seventies. I think. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So he filmed tomorrow's yesterday, like I said, on time in six days under budget, and as a result, he was asked to return to direct another episode of Star Trek, but he declined because he chose to instead direct. Uh, but he was asked to return, but he declined choosing to instead direct a Disney Western feature film called Smith, thinking that it would be a better career move. And it was not because that movie bombed. But uh, this episode is just a a wonderful, delightful episode. And so, like I mentioned, Dorothy Fontana, it's her second screenplay. She wrote her story outline on October 3rd, 1966, she did her second draft teleplay on November 9th. Gene Kuhn, now the day-to-day producer, comes in and does a script polish for a final draft teleplay on November 21st. And he did a couple of script revisions on November 22nd and December 1st. And like the episode that Gene Kuhn wrote, this episode is another one that sped through the very long and laborious writing process. And... This was also the period of time when Dorothy Fontana made the jump from being Gene Roddenberry's secretary to becoming a full-time screenwriter. And what a good thing she did that because just on Star Trek alone, her contributions were just as crucial and, and essential as that of Roddenberry Coon, Bob Justman. And I think we discussed before when we were, when we were doing uh, The Naked Time that this was supposed to be part two. Right, right. Because remember when they're on the bridge at the end of the naked time and the uh, the navigator turns around and says to Captain Kirk, direction. And Kirk says, direction, direction. Doesn't matter, the way we came. Mm. Well, in the script for the naked time, 
back when it was they were thinking about doing a two-part episode, Kirk says, direction, direction, uh, uh, doesn't matter the way we came towards Earth. Mm. So when they when they slingshot away from Psy 2000, you know, the next episode was supposed to have them back in the late 1960s. And what a great idea. I mean, this starship being mistaken and identified as a UFO. I mean, can you just imagine, you know, they're, they're talking about it going, oh, my God, what a great idea. The Enterprise in the 60s, uh, and they're, they're mistaken for a UFO. It, it, it's so weird to me that they went so early in the series, let's have a two-parter. And I wonder what their thinking was. Because in general, when you do a two-parter, particularly back in the day, it was a bigger story that took two parts to resolve. Like, I have such a strong memory, and probably you do too, of the – two-part Sasquatch episodes of the Six Million Dollar Man, and that to be continued, it has a, a you're in the middle of a story and you're going to finish it. This is, if they had done it, this is, here's a separate story, and then the tag at the end of the story is almost the teaser for the next story. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. That's, and that's a different style. That's more like doing continuing episodes of each adventure leading to a separate adventure. And that's not what they did with the show at all. So like, I want really wonder what the discussion, because I think at that moment, you almost, if you had done that with naked time, well, then that would be a thing that you would do again. You know what I mean? Like in general, you don't just do something once and then never do it again. The menagerie being a weird exception because it's just a weird episode. And so <laughs> I, I'm, I'm really glad they didn't do it. I think it yeah. would, I think it would have been a mistake. Although that idea of the tag on one episode is kind of the teaser for the next one. That's a fun way to make a story. You know, that's a fun show. That, that, that would have been a fun show. And I think just, just because they decided not to do that, looking back on the naked time and having them, you know, go back in time three days. I mean, it's not really necessary. I mean, you know, the episode, it doesn't really have anything to do with the rest of the episode, yeah. but, but regardless. So, but this was such a great idea, Steve, that more than one person came up with it. Oh, really? So here's, here's the interesting story. And I didn't know this. So back in April of 1966, Bob Justman, the associate producer sent a memo to Gene Roddenberry, uh, which, by the way, predates the first draft of The Naked Time, saying, hey, I have a great idea. Wouldn't it be really cool? Of course, I'm paraphrasing. Wouldn't it be really cool if the Enterprise went back in time and was mis you know, identified as a UFO and they have to like figure out how to not only correct their problems but get back to their own time? Well, he was not paid for his idea and Dorothy Fontana actually said, I never saw the memo. I came up with it on my own. So so there was a little bit of, uh, I guess, right. an awkward situation where, right. where Justman swears he came up with the idea. Fontana saying, no, I never saw the memo. I came up with it on my own. And Bob Justman wanted to get a little, you know, a little money for right. his idea and he didn't get it. And but anyway, uh, it all it all worked out. <laughs> wrote a great screenplay, and uh, I'm very excited. Uh, I got to tell you, I'm very excited to hear, because it takes place in the late 60s, what was going on in the world 
when this episode was filmed. Um, well, let me tell you, because it's a really interesting week in world history. The first one, which is fascinating to me, is that on November 28th, the Soviet Union began a new rocket program. And that program was the Soyuz program. Oh, yeah. Which is, was, is still being used... 50 plus years later to send people up into space. This this has got to be the most successful engineering rocket program ever. I mean, it's amazing that this thing that was happening in the mid 60s, they're still using, you know, that that's just absolutely crazy. Um, also on the 28th, there was a hell of a party ranked as one of the 10 parties that shook the century from the New York Times. And that is Truman Capote's black and white ball. Oh, wow. And basically <laughs> everyone was there. It's, yeah. You know, just name your famous mid 60s celebrity. They were all at the black and white ball on November 29th, 2400 years after his death. The tomb of Chinese philosopher Confucius was destroyed by the Red Guard. This is during the Cultural Revolution, and they felt that Confucius philosophy was in conflict with the People's Republic of China. And students from the Red Guard, they destroyed the statue and the tablet. They dug up the grave, and they found nothing. There was no body of Confucius there. Mm. On November 30th, Barbados was granted independence from the United Kingdom. And this is, you know, the winding down of the imperialist era. All of these colonies are slowly becoming independent over that time. Uh, On the same day, a ceasefire was signed in Vietnam, and it was to go from Christmas through January 2nd, and that was to include the Vietnamese holiday known as Tet. And Mm. two years later... They violated the same ceasefire in the 68 Tet Offensive. Um, and this one, Scott, there was a mystery. It was solved by Miami Herald reporter Neil Omdor. This is a really important discovery. He noticed that members of the Florida University of Florida football team were drinking out of milk cartons when they were practicing. And he went... Tried to find out what it was, went to the coach. The the coach, Mike Graves, said that it's this thing we've been working on. It was invented by this medical professor at the University of Florida named Robert Cade. And the story came out and it headlined Florida's pause that refreshes. It spread nationwide within weeks and it was marketed worldwide the next year in 1967. Scott, do you have any idea what this mysterious beverage was? Oh, geez. Wow. What a question. I know I'm going, I'm going to hear this, Steve, and I'm going to go, I should have known better. Well, it was the University of Florida football team that was drinking it. Oh, orange juice. Nope. The, <laughs> if, the University of Florida football team is the Gators. And this is... Oh, Gatorade. Yep. Gatorade. Yes! <laughs> um, remember last last time for our last episode, we talked about the Johns Hopkins had just launched their uh, gender uh, reassignment surgery and asked for applicants. Well, they got hundreds of applicants right away. And this and there's a, a, a Dr. Greenson who is a psychiatrist and he was shocked and he at a large conference said this is way more widespread than we believed and then listen to what some of the things he said. <laughs> he said that this is what we're noting with this is that American males are becoming indifferent to sex. And what he blamed that for was the increasive assertiveness of women. And that is something that repulses men. 
and that he hoped that at some point they would work this out because the future of the human race was at stake. That was his re- reaction to people wanting uh, gender reassignment surgery. Um, wow. <laughs> on December 3rd, the U.S. had a project called Project Sterling. And the idea they wanted to find out is if you buried a nuclear bomb deep enough and blew it up, would anyone hear it? <laughs> <laughs> so they buried a bomb under Lamar County, Mississippi, 1.5 miles under the ground. No one heard it. <laughs> it's just such a weird thing. And this one is really important and kind of amazing considering where we are today. On December 4th in Nigeria, Dr. William Fogue or Foge, I don't know how to pronounce his name. Mm-hmm, he mm-hmm. implemented this surveillance and containment strategy that would eliminate smallpox. This is what came to be known, what we talk about today as contact tracing, is the idea of you see where an infection is, you see everybody who is uh, was in contact with that person, and you isolate them, and they within a, within a few decades, from this person's system, they destroyed smallpox, wiped it off the face of the planet. Mm, wow. And it is obviously things that we're still thinking about today. One last thing, on the same night, uh, a freshman basketball player in UCLA stepped onto the UCLA court for the first time and in his first game as a freshman broke broke the record for most points scored ever by UCLA player 56 points in one game and that man's name was Lou Alcinder who later became Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Wow, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, what a legend. I got to say also what an amazing writer. I've been reading oh, his Oh, he's fantastic. He's his bylines in The Hollywood Reporter, and he is just a, a, a superb writer, a superb human being. Yeah. My goodness. Uh, well, a lot of history that it's week. a lot huh? of history that week. A lot going on. Um, shall we get into Tomorrow is Yesterday? Let's, let's do it. Um, so same reactions you had. I'm looking at this going, man, I, I'm sure that in 1967 when this aired going, wait, I thought Star Trek was on. What's Where's Star yeah. Trek? Because we start off with – Stock footage of uh, a jet on a runway and radar station, and we're in what is a very tiny set. And I just had to say, like, there are certain sets where you have no money, and all you do is you build what's called a, a corner set, which is you have two flats, which are basically two fake walls. You put them next to each other. You light it really dimly so that nobody notices this is the cheapest set. It's probably about four feet by five feet, you know, that you stick yeah, a desk Yeah, it in does it. look small, I got to say. You know, like, yeah. I, I like, like even now when you're, when you're watching that, that scene, and by the way, the Air Force personnel are played by Richard Murrayfield and Mark Dempsey. You know, you're watching that going, Oh, that just looks does not look like an Air Force base at all. But I got to say too that 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 those that footage, the footage that begins tomorrow's yesterday was taken at George Air Force Base in California, mm. and it shows an F one hundred four C Starfighter. This particular aircraft, because I guess they were able to read the serial number on it, had crashed due to engine failure over Thailand. On January 16th, 1967, 10 days before the episode actually aired, but they were actually able to trace that jet that actually had crashed in Thailand on January 16th. And uh, originally, the teaser was not supposed to begin on an Air Force base. It was supposed to begin on the Enterprise, which was dealing with, and I quote, the destruction of an external force. But NBC's Stan Robertson 
liked the idea of opening on an airbase with the Enterprise identified as a UFO. And, you know, when those guys, the Air Force personnel say, I think we have a real UFO in our hands, and you hear the siren going, and you see the jet take off, I think the way Michael O'Hurley directed this bit is really quite uh, extraordinary because you see the Air Force jet take off, and then for a split second, you hear the Enterprise theme before you mm. actually see it. And again, watching the original effect of the Enterprise in the sky versus the remastered effect where it's like shaking and shimmering because yeah. you know it's, it's off its rocker. Uh, and just the way it sort of closes out that teaser. I don't care how many times I watch Tomorrow's Yesterday, this teaser makes me smile. I think, uh, I don't remember what his name, Stan from NBC yep. was so right because what it gives you by starting with our world is it gives you this moment. And particularly, I think you're right too, that the choice to have the music lead the visuals just a little bit. You have this moment as an audience member going, oh, wow. <laughs> you know, I know what they're, I know what they're about to see. That is really, really cool. Um, well, one quick thing I wanted to say about them, someone tracking the serial number and finding out what happened to that plane is that uh, it was a few episodes ago. I don't remember which one I, I said something about how it's it, that Star Trek is like a mythology and just like a mythology, it's open to interpretation. Um, and we like interpreting in lots of different ways. The other way that it's like a religious text is that people are pouring over every possible detail to find <laughs> yeah. out more stuff like that. I mean, that is like what someone would do to an archaeological dig is find some tiny little detail and use that to find out something else. That is how much people care about what goes on in these episodes. Well, I want to ask you something as a filmmaker, Steve, like the process of, of hearing something before you see it. Mm. Like, I, I think that whenever you're watching a movie and you, you hear something before you see it, like in The Empire Strikes Back, when you hear the, the ADATs approaching Echo Base, you know, you hear the thumping, mm -hmm. uh, and then you see it. Like in Apocalypse Now, when you hear Colonel Kurtz's voice talking to Willard, before you actually see him. And in this episode, I mean, obviously very, very different, but in this episode, you know, for a split second during the footage, the stock footage of the jet taking off, when you hear the music, the, the theme of the Enterprise, that that fanfare, uh, that motif, it just, and then you actually see the Enterprise. It's, it's so much more powerful, yet it's such a subtle sort of thing. I, I think... Obviously, this is done for a whole bunch of different reasons, um, but I think you point out something really important. And one thing uh, that I teach in film school is that in general, um, filmmakers spend, you spend 85, 95% of the time on the set worrying about visuals. And the cinematography and the, the gaffers and the lighting grip departments have so much time to light a set. And then the sound guy gets no attention at all. So sound is like people think of like very, very little on the set. And yet sound is way, way more powerful in a film than we give it credit for. And part of the reason is that sound 
it hits us subjectively on an emotional level. Like mm-hmm. we have experience, a feeling happen, but we aren't consciously aware of what created the feeling. So like when you see an image on the screen, you go like, oh, there is a monster or, oh, there is a tree or, oh, there is a beautiful vista or whatever it is. You consciously understand what you're looking at. When you hear something, particularly in the circumstances that you described, where you hear it before you see it, is your body is already having an emotional reaction to what is about to happen. And so it changes your perception of the whole thing. It makes you, and and of course, this is, you know, as filmmakers, all we're trying to do is give you an emotional reaction. That's the whole point. And so that it's a great thing that you point out and it's a really powerful tool, I think. Yeah, it definitely, definitely works. So we come back in act one and now finally we do go up to the enterprise, which is looking pretty messed up. This is interesting because again, this is another situation where you're watching it. And when you're watching it with the newer effects, you know, when you see when you see the title card, it says tomorrow's yesterday, you're looking at at Earth's atmosphere. And then as soon as the words tomorrow's yesterday disappear, you see the Enterprise coming through the clouds. And it's just such a beautiful shot to see the Enterprise over the Earth with these new effects. I just I've watched I've rewatched this episode so many times with the new effects because after all these decades of watching it with the old effects, to have such a rewarding experience with something that I love so much, but in a different way being rewarding, uh, I just think that it's it's really a special thing to be able to to capture that feeling. We hear that they had been had to escape a black star that was pulling them into its orbit, and they had to go to maximum work to escape, and they describe it as like snapping a rubber band. And at the breakaway, it sent us plunging through space out of control. So that black star, by the way, if uh, this episode had been filmed a year later, it would have been called a black hole. And the reason for that is that the word black hole was not coined until later the same year that this episode aired by physicist John Archibald Wheeler in a speech to NASA, because I always wondered, like, why did they just call it a black hole? Well, uh, because the words black hole to describe that phenomenon in deep space had actually not been uh, invented yet. So it's so funny. I wrote down in my notes, black hole, question mark? Yep. The other thing, by the way, I think uh, John Wheeler is a Berkeley physicist, which is where I went to school. And there is Wheeler Hall, which is a huge lecture hall at Berkeley. I think I'm not 100 percent sure because I haven't checked this. I think it's named after him. And I had lots and lots of classes in that hall. Oh, interesting. Hi, this is Steve jumping in just for a second to let you know that I was wrong on both counts. John Archibald Wheeler was a Princeton guy, not a Berkeley guy, and Wheeler Hall, where I had so many classes, was named after Benjamin Ide Wheeler, a former university president. We don't like to give out wrong information on Enterprise incidents, so I had to put in a correction. And by the way, this is as messed up, I think, as we've seen the bridge crew. They're all dazed and groggy. Uh, Sulu, you know, Kirk helps Sulu to his feet. Uhura's on the ground. We can't, we don't even have contact with Mr. Scott. Yeah, yeah. It's so funny. You know, Spock says, if Miss, if Mr. Scott is still with us, you know, power should be back momentarily. And then, like, all the lights come on and you hear the bridge sounds. And he looks at Captain Kirk and says, Mr. Scott is still with us. Like, yay, Scotty. <laughs> yeah, it's great. And then we know we're in orbit and we ask where. And they say, we're in orbit around Earth. So this is all going to be fine. We're back home. No big deal. No harm, no foul. <laughs> and Uhura is on the regular hailing frequencies and there's no Starfleet commands. Nothing but static. 
And then Uhura says that there's something coming in on another frequency, and she switches to it, and we hear... This is the 5.30 news summary. Cape Kennedy. The first manned moonshot is scheduled for Wednesday, 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. And the reactions that go around the bridge are amazing because they realize, and Kirk says, that was in the late 1960s. Apparently, Captain, so are we. And Kirk's reaction and the way the camera zooms in and he says, what? What a great reaction. Shatner plays it perfectly. And by the way, that that radio broadcast about Cape Kennedy, the first man moonshot. So when Dorothy Fontana wrote those words, she correctly predicted the day of the week that Apollo 11 would launch. Wow. It was on Wednesday, July 16th, 1969. So so you got to keep in mind. So, Steve, this episode is being filmed in 1966. And Kennedy, uh, years before, had made this deadline that we were going to go to the moon and back by the end of the 60s. So – it's a good thing that all worked out or yeah. this episode would not have aged too well. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, unlike just about everything else in future prediction from old episodes, of, they're almost all wrong. <laughs> Captain, I'm getting ground to air transmission. And the way she says I'm getting this transmission, like she's like, like in awe of the fact that she is hearing this transmission from Earth's past and – I got to say, Nichelle Nichols played that line and that scene perfectly because you're really feeling her fascination and her uh, how awe-inspired she is at that moment. And I love, too, by the way, it's good structure, which is the moment we have that, which is an exciting thing. Now we hear that there's a ship coming towards us, that there's ground-to-air transmission, and some kind of craft is approaching us from below. And we cut to a jet, and we see a pilot in the cockpit. Pilot looks up and sees the Enterprise. I can see it now. Whatever this thing is, it's big. When we see Captain Christopher looking through his cockpit, I got to say the original effect in, in this episode was actually pretty good. When you see the Enterprise climbing away through mm. Christopher's point of view. But again, the remastered effect, like if you were in a plane and you looked up and you saw the Starship Enterprise in Earth's atmosphere – this is what it would look like, and it just looks amazing. And and these new effects just like really make you feel so much for it because it looks so real. You know what I'm curious about? Because we brought this up over and over again. And I think you and I almost entirely love the new new effects. Um, yeah. I'm curious what other people think. Are there people that just like don't mess with my Star Trek? This is not it's just keep the original. I would love to hear maybe on our Facebook page. What do you think about these new effects? Do you watch them or do you watch them? Are there people out there who watch them with the original effects? I'd really love to know. More specifically to this episode, do you think that Tomorrow is Yesterday is an episode that is greatly improved overall because of the new visual effects? Let us know on our Facebook page, Enterprise Incidents. So we're on the bridge. We know that this jet is nearby. And what I will say is there are a few really dumb decisions made by the Enterprise. And they are absolutely necessary because if they don't make those decisions, then we don't have a show. And so while I don't think that the things they do are all that smart here, they have to happen. And I think the key to it is that Spock says... Aircraft is an interceptor, equipped with missiles, possibly armed with nuclear warheads. 
If he hits us with one, he might damage us severely, perhaps beyond our capacity to repair under current circumstances. So Kirk orders Scotty to lock a tractor beam onto that ship, which seems like a pretty bold move because we hear that aircraft might be way too fragile to handle our tractor beam. And I think it's really interesting that that Fontana wrote this story in which we see, you know, Captain Kirk, you know, make some bad decisions because then he has to spend the rest of the episode correcting his problems. You know, we are seeing that humanity in the future, you know, we're more advanced, certainly if we're going down into deep space and traveling at warp, uh, warp speed, but we're still learning and we're still making decisions and making some bad ones and learning from them and learning how to correct them. And yes, the jet is too fragile. It starts to break up and we have to beam the pilot aboard the Enterprise. We get to the transporter room. I love that. And it makes no sense, but it's great that our Air Force pilot is facing the wrong way on the transporter. And what it is, is like, well, how would anyone know which way to face when they're about to be beamed up? Why does everyone beamed up facing the right way? But it is That's funny. That's a good point. <laughs> it, it, does, it does totally work. Well, even why is he standing? He was sitting. He was well, that's sitting. a good point. Can you imagine if you like being the board sitting in, in, you know, in the sitting position? That actually would have been pretty funny. Well, and, and of course, this is all like it's a TV show. <laughs> this is how they did it. Mm. And Kirk is there and he welcomes him aboard the Enterprise. And let's welcome aboard Roger Perry, who plays Captain Christopher. And Roger Perry was discovered by Lucille Ball, mm. who gave the green light to Star Trek. But Lucille Ball hired Roger Perry as a Desilu contract player. So on TV, Roger Perry had a couple of regular series. One was called Harrigan and Son. And then he did another show called Arrest and Trial. He was also seen on TV's The Munsters, The Invaders, Nanny and the Professor love American style. Hmm. And you know what I always thought when I was a little kid? I thought that the actor who played Captain Christopher and the actor who played Lieutenant Lee Kelso in hmm. Where No Man Has Gone Before, I thought they were the same person because don't you think they kind of look alike? Well, except Lee Kelso's kind of blonde, isn't he? He has much lighter hair. Well, he does have lighter hair, but you know this is yeah. hair and makeup. Uh, but but they looked uh, they looked pretty similar, and of course, uh, it didn't take too long for me to realize that they are not the same person. But for you know for a little split second but there he, when I was a kid, he has such a specific mid sixties look. Like I he's I I didn't think that he looked like Kelso, but I was like I know this guy from somewhere, mm -hmm. I, and it's probably because I saw him on all these other shows that he was on. Definitely, um, and again. Kirk has Kirk rushes into this with no thought about time travel or anything. And it's like, you know, maybe he hadn't watched Back to the Future and knows that you can mess <laughs> things up. Maybe he missed that movie, but he just introduces himself. I'm Captain James T. Kirk. What's going on here? Where am I? What happened? All in good time, Captain. What I love about this exchange is Roger Perry is as Christopher. He's in the military. He's in a an unknown vessel. It might be an enemy vessel. Who the heck knows? This was during the Vietnam War. This was during the Cold War. Could be the Soviets. Like, who the heck knows? But I love how Kirk is like, he's amused by all this. Like, he think it's like kind of exciting that they're back in time. They're in the 60s. And here's this guy from the 20th century on the transporter platform of this 23rd century starship. And even though Christopher is very stoic and very, very rigid, 
like I love seeing Captain Kirk so like like fascinated by all this. I think that's a good way to put it because I really do think because he's not taking this seriously, even though like we're you know d- could be messing up with time. He's not really thinking about that. He's just going, what an interesting situation we're in. And he takes uh, Christopher out into the corridor where immediately we see he says a woman and Kirk says a crewman. And you know what a it made crewman. me think of is what? Trelane saying women. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I love that look. And by the way, if you notice when the female crew member is walking by and she goes, good morning, Captain. And he goes, good morning. By the way, you never see any of their lips move. Mm. If you watch closely, the editing team recorded some dialogue that they edited into that scene because you don't see any of their lips move, but you have to really watch closely. All of that dialogue that you heard at that moment was dubbed later. But uh, I do think it's funny. And, and, you know, Kirk is like, hey, you know, She's a crewman. That's just the way we roll in the 23rd century. So you want to know why I think you don't see their lips move? Why? I have no evidence of this. But here is a tricky way to save some money. If you give someone a line, they are a SAG actor and you have to pay them a SAG rate. If they don't have a line, they're an extra and you can pay them an extra rate. And so this is something that is frequently done on movies to save money, which is you have someone as an extra and you pay them as an extra. They have no lines. But you give them an off-camera line or a line where you can't see their uh, lips move and you pay a voiceover person to come in and loop it because that way is cheaper. It'll save you a few hundred bucks than it is to give that actor a line. And it is really mean because that extra, they could use that credit to join the union. And so you're keeping them out of the union by saving money this way. That probably is what happened. Uh, You know, that makes a whole lot of sense. Oh, the other thing I really love about the scene between Kirk and Christopher in the transporter room is the lighting. Again, got to give credit here to the immensely talented Jerry Finnerman, cinematographer for Star Trek. But, but so while Christopher's on the transporter platform and you cut back to Captain Kirk, the lighting around his mm, eyes. Yeah. Right. That's yeah. like that. Like he and he did that a lot. But I just think it it adds a dramatic effect. But it also adds uh, another level because, again, there's a lot of levity going on with this scene. But, again, just just the cinematography, Jerry Finnerman, I, I cannot say enough about him. Every time I can give credit to this legend, I absolutely will. When does he leave the show? Uh, middle of the third season. It'll be real interesting when we get there. That's oh, a long, yeah. Yeah, that's a long way to go. And when we get there, that'll be really interesting. You'll I love, notice. by the way, first of all, they get in the turbo lift. And I suddenly went like, you know, Kirk grabs a little handle thing. Why are there handles in the turbo lift, but no seatbelts on the bridge? <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and particularly in this episode. But then Kirk, who said, you know what, we're going to tell you what we want to tell you when we tell you that. It then just tells him everything. Our authority is the United Earth Space Probe Agency. United Earth? It's very difficult to explain. We're from your future. He says the United Earth Space Probe Agency. And by this point, because because Gene Kuhn had already been the producer now for a few episodes, and we have already heard words like Starfleet and Federation, I'm surprised that Kirk didn't say we're with the United Federation of Planets because it had already been established by that point. But at the same time, the United Earth Space Probe Agency – U-E-S-P-A, USPA headquarters, was mentioned in the episode 
Charlie X. Mm. So well, that's uh, interesting. But the other thing it's trick that's interesting here, and I think actually this is crucial. So when Christopher says to Captain Kirk, it must have been, must have taken quite a lot to build a ship like this. Kirk is he's so fascinated with Christopher that he's having a conversation with a guy from the 20th century. He says there are only 12 like it in the fleet. So that means that that Captain Kirk has confirmed that there are 12 starships like the Enterprise. There are 12 Constitution-class starships at this point in Star Trek's history. And we will see a few of those ships uh, for the rest of uh, the, 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 the run of the original series. But, you know, just a throwaway line, there are 12 like it in the fleet. But that became like, oh, there's 12 Constitution-class starships. We are getting up to the bridge. Kirk has revealed that they're from the future. And Christopher, I think he's a great character because I think he is absorbing what's happening around him. He's observing. And he is, you know, believing that at least to some degree what he's hearing is the truth. I can't deny the fact that you are here with his ship. I never have believed in little green men. And there is Mr. Spock. Neither have I. That moment when Spock says, neither have I, and Christopher turns around and he's just staring at Spock like a deer in the headlights. And by the way, I got to say, what you just said right now about Christopher, the way he is observing, the way he is absorbing, I want you to remember that because I'm going to come back to that point when we get to the end of this episode. Mm, mm. And then Kirk again just says, hey, look around. Here, let me just <laughs> yeah. show you everything. <laughs> um, I know where you're going with this. <laughs> we cannot return him to Earth, Captain. He already knows too much about us and is learning more. I do not specifically refer to Captain Christopher, but suppose an unscrupulous man were to gain certain knowledge of man's future. Such a man could manipulate key industries, stocks, and even nations, and in so doing, change what must be. And if it is changed, Captain, you and I, and all that we know, might not even exist. Because up to this point, Kirk was just very, having fun. <laughs> very, yeah, he was having fun, right? He was totally accommodating, being like, you know, he wants this guest, this very special guest, to feel very comfortable. And he's like, yeah, go ahead, take a look around, just don't touch anything. But when Spock makes that comment, this is a foreshadowing of something that we are going to see play out in a later Star Trek episode where the actions of one person affect the future to the point where you and I and all that we know will not exist. And of course, the episode that I'm referring to, Steve, is... The City on the Edge of Forever. Correct. And this is the first episode in which we are seeing time travel, and the cause and effect of one person making one change that will affect the future. And this is something that we've seen happen now, like even going into like the 2009 Star Trek movie. But this is the first time where just that prospect has even been explored. So the, the, I want to get back to that, but I want to say one other thing first, which is I read this line that Spock says about an unscrupulous man could manipulate key industries, stocks, even nations, and change the future. And I go, 
Bob Zemeckis was a Star Trek. Oh fan. yes, Biff. He had to be because this is exactly what Biff does by bringing the sports almanac back to fifties Biff and thus changing the future. I, I it's one hundred percent has to be that oh, Zemeckis watched Star Trek. Of course, he my did. God. And next time I get to interview Robert Zemeckis, I'm going to ask him this question. I cannot wait. Um, <laughs> by the way, it's so cool that in that your life, there is going to be a next time. You know, that's such a neat thing to know that, yeah, you're going to get to interview him again. That's really cool. Um, I'm going to ask him. <laughs> something we're going to have to talk about and we're going to have to talk about not just in this episode, but in most multiple episodes is Star Trek time travel logic. So oh boy. all all <laughs> anytime you do time travel, we just mentioned Back to the Future. Back to the Future has very specific time tra- travel logic is that things you do in the past do affect the future, but they affect it slowly so that the, the your image on the picture is slowly fading away. Not that that makes any sense, but it whereas in Star Trek time travel logic based on City of the Edge of Forever, everything seems to happen instantly. But then they mess with time travel logic later. I think Star Trek's basically the worst. I think <laughs> I, I, I love Star Trek, but they're so inconsistent about how they deal with this stuff. Um, and of course, there is no way to do have good time travel logic because it's filled with paradoxes. That flight suit must be uncomfortable. Why don't you have a quartermaster issue him something more suitable? First time that we've mentioned a quartermaster on the Enterprise. And then this look that... Christopher gives Mr. Spock and Lieutenant Uhura Mm. and Uhura looks at Spock and she looks at Christopher. And I just love how amused Uhura is by Mm -hmm. this whole thing. It's such a, it's such a delightful moment. And the music score that is played during this moment was composed by Joseph Mullendore. He composed it for the episode, the conscience of the King, Mm. but it was not used so though he did not compose this music for Tomorrow's Yesterday, this music score, this motif that you're hearing during this particular moment was used for the first time in Tomorrow is Yesterday. We're in Kirk's quarters. He is talking to his computer. <laughs> the computer has a different voice than we're used to hearing. Computed and recorded, dear. Computer, you will not address me in that manner. Computed, dear. <laughs> Okay, now that line, that whole concept of the flirty computer, if you remember when we were talking about court-martial, we were talking, I think during that episode, I had mentioned that the computer played a much, much bigger part Mm, than it mm -hmm. already did, and the the computer was going to kind of be like that. Well, it didn't work for court-martial, and it almost wasn't going to work for Tomorrow's Yesterday because Robert Justman – just he just was kind of dead set against the idea of a flirty computer, but Gene Kuhn wanted it to stay, and it stayed. And Machel Barrett just played the voice of the computer, the flirty computer, just perfectly. I I think she does it great. I don't think I like it as a bit. You know what I mean? Like it's a little bit weird. Uh, <laughs> uh, what makes this moment totally work, by the way, is that it's Captain Christopher's reactions that are really selling it. And I think what's, here's why I think it is great is that it is the humanity, the accidents, the errors, the sense of humor that makes Christopher believe these guys. In other words, he he doesn't think he's being lied to because they're obviously not perfect. They're just, they're very human in all of the stuff that's happening. You know, that's a really good point. That's a really good point. And by the way, like this whole episode, is like a fantasy 
for everybody watching Star Trek. This whole episode is a fantasy for everyone who loves Star Trek because how cool would it be to get a tour of the Starship oh, Enterprise? Yeah. And here's this guy from the 20th century who's actually getting a tour of the Enterprise. I think if we're putting a really good point, like he's he's sort of questioning the serious moments, like when Kirk is telling him in the turbo lift around everything. And But yet when he's in Kirk's quarters and he's seeing this humorous moment about the flirty computer, like he almost buys that because, you know, you can't, you can't fake that, you know, like that's actually happening in motion. And also when Spock is uh, talking about the, you know, the, the, the fact that they gave the computer a female voice, this is a joke that I don't think ages that well, you know, Spock is, uh, seems annoyed that they gave the computer a female voice. And uh, interestingly, the, you know, the episode was written by a woman, but, you know, it was it was 1966 and times were very, very, very different. But uh, that is not a that's not a joke that has aged all that well. Well, and I think it particularly doesn't age well because what it's doing, its sense of humor is basically saying all women are flighty and flirty and emotional. And that's irritating because to give it's not because the computer already had a female voice. What they're saying is it gave the computer a female personality and all and female personalities bring all this stuff with it. It is a very sexist view of what a female yeah, personality for sure. is. Absolutely it, agree. I wouldn't mind so much if only it didn't get so affectionate. It also has an unfortunate tendency to giggle. And it also makes me wonder Dorothy Fontana might not have written that. You know, that could be Gene oh, Coon. That could that be, could be a know, revision. Yeah, sure. It could be a revision. Um, the, the other thing, the thing that you just said, I just want to highlight it, which I think is so cool, which I ha- wasn't really thinking of, but so obvious is like, what is this episode? This is us getting to us 20th century people getting to get on board the Starship Enterprise and look around. And wouldn't that be so cool? <laughs> well, you, you people certainly have interesting problems. When you look at Kirk and he's like, he's amused at Christopher's amusement, but now he has to get serious with the guy. I'd love to stay around to see how your girlfriend works out, but I'm afraid you'll have to. We can't send you back. Can't. And Christopher is thinking personally, you know, I've got a wife and two children. And he's also thinking... It's my job. It's my duty to report everything I have seen. So yep. there's a lot like suddenly, you know, you're going from all this levity and humor and and suddenly you're snapped back into reality. And this is a life or death situation with uh, with consequences that could absolutely be disastrous. Well, then my disappearance would change something, too. And Spock, with no bedside manner whatsoever, basically <laughs> says... I have run a computer check on all historical tapes. They show no record of any irrelevant contribution by John Christopher. I love what you said, which is that Christopher, like Captain Kirk, has a duty. He has a duty performed. He's sworn an oath. He has to fulfill that duty. He has to get back. And again, this is something I I know I mentioned before. This is another episode. There's no bad guy. Right. Oh, that's a good point. We have a problem and we have people in conflict because they have different goals but there's no nobody's evil here i feel for christopher in fact if i were to it's not a criticism but the one thing i would do differently in this show is i would make christopher more active and more skilled i would make him more of a match for captain kirk in trying to achieve his goal that's the one thing that i would change remember what i said before about how christopher was observing Mm -hmm. and absorbing and now what you're saying 
about how Christopher being a match for Captain Kirk. I want you to remember that too when we get to the end of this conversation because everything you were saying is extremely relevant by we by the time we reach the outcome. And the other thing, Steve, is this. Yeah, I mean, in, in a physical sort of sense, we don't have an antagonist. We don't have like a bad guy here. But we are our own worst enemies in this episode. Captain Kirk and his crew. Yes. Like yeah. they're the ones making the mistakes and they have to realize these mistakes and go back and correct them. Yep, that's exactly, exactly right. Um, it is a problem to be solved, not a villain to be defeated. Exactly. Um, mm-hmm. And again, this is this thing that Star Trek does really, really well in these episodes is we created a real problem. We can't send Christopher, Christ, I want to say Christopher Pike. We can't, <laughs> see, we can't send Captain Christopher back. And that creates a conflict between Christopher and Kirk. And right at the moment of this conflict, we hear from Scotty that, yeah, we're getting the, the engines fixed. But we've got nowhere to go in this time. Too bad, Captain. Maybe I can't go home, but neither can you. You're as much a prisoner in time as I am. The great thing about that moment is just after Captain Kirk had to deliver bad news to Captain Christopher, now you're seeing Captain Christopher deliver bad news back to Captain Kirk. Yep. So already going on what you just pointed out about like making Christopher more of a match. Like he is already showing himself to be a match for Captain Kirk. Yeah, absolutely. And that of course is the end of act one. We come back in act two with some more flirty computer jokes, including Kirk saying, my recording computer has a serious malfunction recommended either be corrected or scrapped compute. And we hear a crying computer say, Computed. Oh, that's so great. And Kirk is like, you know, good. Like he made his point. I, I just think that, you know, this is, a, this is an episode where Shatner's comic timing really starts to, uh, you know, play out. Yeah. If you look at other episodes, like whether it's Trouble with Chibbles or A Piece of the Action, or you look later in Shatner's career with especially, you know, Boston Legal and right. The Practice – like he has always been funny. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing that we find out is Captain Christopher is missing. And we see Christopher in the corridor. He takes out a red guy, gets a phaser, gets into the transporter room. Now I'm going to step into that thing and you're going to transport me back to Earth. Kyle is the transporter chief. And so it's played by John Winston. Now, everybody loves Lieutenant Kyle. You know, he was in episodes like, like Mirror Mirror. And and uh, this was his first of 11 appearances on Star Trek. Uh, and he also played Commander Kyle on the bridge of the Starship Reliant oh. in Star Trek II, The Wrath of right, Kind. Of course it is, yeah. Uh, yes, of course. He was also on TV at the time and shows like the man from Uncle and the Time Tunnel. And he played Captain Jeffries on the fan-made uh, Star Trek, The New Voyages Phase 2. But uh, Kyle was kind of a beloved character and mm-hmm. – You know, John Winston uh, is – I love seeing John Winston as Kyle. He was great. And just at this moment, in comes Kirk, who pretty much knocks him out with one punch. So this moment of Kirk uh, knocking out Christopher in one punch, this is the most important moment of where I wish Christopher was more, is that if I were directing this thing, 
Kirk would come in and disarm him, surprise him by by kicking away the phaser. And then he would go for the one punch, except Captain Christopher is as good a fighter as Kirk and surprises him and fights back. And it's a really close fight rather than a one punch knockout. You make him a more formidable opponent that way. You are absolutely right. And that would have been a great moment in which like Captain Kirk realizes that like he's more able to relate to Captain Christopher, because just in the very next scene. He tried to escape, and now he feels. But I can't send him back with what he knows. He really relates to Christopher and empathizes with him. You're right. It would have made the episode better to see them realize how alike they really are. Well, this is, it goes to like a basic philosophical idea in terms of storytelling is, am I building up my hero or am I building up my my villains? You know, mm-hmm. is that we, th- if you look at the, and it's, it, we just read, read a Die Hard, I think I mentioned on the cinephiles, is that movie is in response to the Arnold and Sylvester Stallone films of the 80s, where you had these heroes who are just unstoppable perfect, powerful, they outclass everybody else. And then you get John McClane, who is flawed and really, really human. And it's like, I would have even had Kirk lose the fight. Have Kirk lose the fight and uh, and four other security guys come in and take down Christopher. And we go, oh man, this guy is tough. Wow, you know? that's that's bold. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we're in sick bay. Christopher is out. And now we're talking to McCoy and we're getting to this problem of like, well, what do we do? Jim, what if we can't go back? What do we do, sit up here and wait for our supplies to run out, our power to die? It has to eventually, you know, and we certainly can't go back to Earth. That would be worse than the captain being returned. And we get to this real conundrum, which is, we don't belong here, and if we get back to where we belong, he won't belong. We're roughly about the same age, but in our society, he'd be useless. Archaic. But maybe he could be retrained, re-educated. Now you're sounding like Spock. If you're going to get nasty, I'm going to leave. That's I love that levity. I love that that comfort level that they all feel with each other. And it's moments like that where you realize just how much how how much Star Trek is really feels very lived in that these people know each other really, really well after spending all this time together. I see physical training is required in your service, too. Crude methods, but effective. (laughs) Spot with a little sense of humor there. Well, I think it's also a setup. Because later on, we're going to see Spock's methods, which are not crude, because we're going to see the famous Vulcan neck pinch. (laughs) I find that we must return Captain Christopher to Earth after all. Why? You said I made no relative contribution. Poor choice of words on my part. I neglected in my initial run through to correlate the possible contributions by offspring. I find after running a cross check on that factor that your son, Colonel Sean Jeffrey Christopher, headed, or will head, the first successful Earth-Saturn probe, which is a rather significant... Wait a minute, I don't have a son. There's a sly smile on Kirk's face, and McCoy goes... You mean yet? It's such a great moment where Spock was wrong. He said Captain Christopher didn't make any relevant contributions. Well, he did make a contribution. He just hasn't made it yet. But, hey... You got to send him back so he can conceive him. <laughs> I love that Christopher has the reaction, not just though the, oh, I'm going to get to go home, but I'm going to have a son. Uh, so, yeah, it's a nice moment. It's Again, a really nice moment. Really, this is this episode just feels special. So a moment ago, 
Christopher and Kirk were opponents. And now suddenly they have to work together to try to mm-hmm. solve this problem. Uh, we're back in the briefing room um, and we hear, okay, the planes crashed in Nebraska. They're going to be crawling all over it. Uh, and Captain Christopher himself complicated the matter because he describes that he turned on cameras and took pictures that they'll be processing of the Enterprise and they recorded all the radio transmissions. So there's a lot of stuff to deal with. So they have to go down and get those tapes and just basically erase the existence of the Enterprise in the 20th century. So even if they do return Captain Christopher and he reports everything he's seen, that no one's going to believe him and this is just going to be just another UFO. That makes me out to be either a liar or a fool. Not at all. It'll simply be one of the thousands who thought he saw a UFO. Well, mm-hmm. it's so crazy that now at this moment, and uh, just a few weeks ago, the U.S. released all of its, or we think, all of its UFO data for the last 50 years, mm-hmm. you know, and that's so there actually is all this documentation of not alien ships, but unidentified you flying objects, things that we don't know what they are, literally was just released. Maybe one of the UFOs that they released <laughs> footage of is the Starship Enterprise. <laughs> yes. God, wouldn't that be the coolest? That would be pretty cool. <laughs> well, I'd like to help. I could sketch a layout of the place for you. Show you where the record section and the photo lab are. So this is interesting. So Kirk gives him the, you know, that, that clapper that they, you know, always take notes on and give their signatures on. So that Captain Christopher can can draw a layout right. of the of the building where they have to go and, and get what they have to get. So just as as Christopher turns his back to write on this, Kirk and Spock look at each other, mm. and that look to me was like, "Do we trust this guy? Can we trust him?" And mm. it was pretty serious. I don't think that they trust him, and as we see a little later, Spock definitely doesn't trust him. Well, I think it's different because I think it's what Spock says later, which is such a good line. I, I do, in fact, I think they do trust him up to a certain point. Definitely. You know, right. As long as their interests are aligned, then they can trust him. Mm-hmm. Um, huh. We're down at the Air Force Base and we see a guard walking down the hallway, he turns around the corner and then Sulu and Kirk transport down. Isn't that cool? Yeah. Seeing this 20th century building and then you see Kirk. And Sulu beam down and they're looking around, uh, they're looking at the, the court board, you know, with all the papers mm-hmm. on it. And they're like, wow, we're on Earth in the 20th century. <laughs> well, I think it's particularly cool because Sulu, as we've established, is the history guy. So it's cool, even though that's not much made of it there, he actually gets to go back in time. It is as cool to see the crew of the Enterprise in our world as it was to see Captain Christopher in theirs. You know. And something that you've pointed out plenty of times now since we're talking about episodes in the first season, another good episode for Sulu where Sulu plays a very big part yeah. in the developments of this episode, not just in beaming down uh, with Captain Kirk, but also in steering the Enterprise back to the 23rd century. Sulu really had a good season in the first season. He really did. We break into the computer room and see, of course, those big, giant computers. I've seen them demonstrated in museums. Me too. If this one's like those, it'll make the devil's own noise if he started. 
I don't intend to start it. Now, I don't know how Kirk and Sulu can look at a giant reel of tape and know which one has the stuff they want on it. Um, but apparently they can. Back in the transporter room, McCoy is he's getting more and more nervous. How long have they been down there now? 15 minutes, 28 seconds. Then as Spock responds to him and answers his questions, McCoy says, Shouldn't you be working on your time warp calculations, Mr. Spock? And then we have a classic Nimoy eyebrow raise, and he says, I am. It is such a great moment. It is such a quintessential, quintessential humorous moment that is so perfectly Spock. And by the way, when we made the transition from the Air Force Base back to the Enterprise, and we see the Enterprise, okay, in this in this shot, we're seeing the Enterprise orbiting the Earth with the moon in the background. Okay. That is the Earth, right. and that is the Moon. I'm talking about, you know, the remastered, yes, the new visual effects. I just think that if you were on the International Space Station and the Enterprise flew by the International Space Station, this is exactly what sure. it would look like. Can you imagine being an astronaut on the International Space Station, looking out the window and seeing this giant starship fly by? in its orbit around the earth. That that image is so cool that that photo is my wallpaper on my computer. Oh, really? Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we're back down on the base, and the light turns on, and there is a guard. Hold it. Get your hands up. Okay, that guard is played by Hal Lynch. Uh, he was on Gunsmoke. He was on The Fugitive. He was on The Big Valley. Didn't really have the uh, the greatest acting career. And as I was reading, uh, I, apparently he died in 2006 at the age of 78 of an apparent suicide, oh. which is really uh, sad to read. But but the the way he plays this air police sergeant, you know, being on duty now to what transpires is really perfect. And he makes them hand over their belts and Sulu's bag, and we're back in the transporter room. McCoy even more nervous. You may be correct, Doctor. Open communicator channel. Which, of course, causes the communicators to beep. And I love <laughs> to Kay and Shatner play this so well. What was that? What was what? That noise. I didn't hear anything. This is the fascinating thing about tone. You could have a scene where someone has a gun pointed at someone, and it could be really serious and really scary. And you could have a scene where someone has a gun pointed at someone, and they're having fun. Same characters, same show, and yet this is handled totally differently. He opens the communicator and sends out an emergency signal. Beam up immediately. And instead of seeing Kirk and Sulu materialize on the transporter platform, <laughs> they see the air police sergeant. In his uh, position yep. of holding the gun on Kirk and Sulu, and he's now on a starship from the 23rd century where he turns very slowly. He's still frozen, frozen in his yeah. stance, but he looks looks to his right, and this guy is walking towards him with green skin, pointed ears, and pointed eyebrows, and he is terrified. <laughs> it's great. I love the way the shot is that he starts down at his feet as Spock is walking forward and it tilts <laughs> up to him. It's a great, great shot. Spock here. Are you all right, Captain? Yes, I'm all right, but as you can see, we have another problem. And that is the end of Act Two. It's so great. I got to tell you that between the screenplay by Dorothy Fontana and the uh, direction of Michael O'Hurley, 
you know, like I mentioned, we the the episodes like like Shirley and Squaragathos had humor in them, but the tone of Tomorrow's Yesterday is definitely different. And it works. Mm-hmm. It is a success. It all is still working within the framework of Star Trek, but it is a different tone. And they they still they kept they kept everything right. Like it all just still works so so well, and it is aged so well at the same time. So we're back in Act Three and back to right at the same moment. And basically, what they say is, keep them in the transporter room. And Spock replies, "Like I don't believe there'll be any trouble in that respect, Captain." Our guest seems quite satisfied to remain where he is. And then there's a long beat, and you see McCoy slowly taking the gun out of his hand. <laughs> and Hal Lynch is looking at the Forrest Kelly, frozen. And, of course, now they're making the decisions they probably should have made with Captain Christopher, which is to limit this guy's access to the Enterprise. Um, we're <laughs> Yeah, true. <laughs> we're sneaking around. We go into the film uh, room. By the way, there's sitting in this film room are a bunch of moviolas and moviolas are the editing system that they use. They were been used all the way back to the silent area to the twenties. And those are the machines. Those exact machines are what I learned to edit on in film school in the mid nineties. Excellent. That's very cool. So do you think that, that using those like helped to establish that this was definitely an earth of the past? I don't I, I don't think so, because I don't think most people knew what they were, you know. Oh, I see. Yeah. But, but it definitely was funny t- for me to look at. It. It's like, oh, I learned how to use those machines. They were still using <laughs> them. You know, they used them basically forever until the digital era when people started editing on uh, Avid's and uh, computer systems. And then suddenly an alarm goes off and our guards and I guess he's a lieutenant colonel all head out. Colonel Fellini. Okay, now, Colonel Fellini, when I first saw Tomorrow's Yesterday, I was like, this guy looks really familiar. Well, the actor playing Colonel Fellini, his name is Ed Peck, and he has been a character actor for many, many decades. Very early in the TV landscape, he was on 13 episodes of Major Del Conway of the Fine Tigers, and he was Major Del Conway. Uh, he was also in shows like Modern Romances, Death Valley Days, The Virginian, That Girl, All in the Family, The Odd Couple. But the reason I knew who Ed Peck was was because of Happy Days. Mm. Did you did you ever watch Happy Days? Of course I did. That had to be home on Tuesdays. There was there was conflicts with Hebrew school. To make it to oh. Happy Days. Um, <laughs> yes, I loved Happy Days, and now I'm trying to think of who he is. Who is he in Happy Days? Okay, so for nine episodes in Happy Days, he was the police officer oh. who was giving Fonzie a hard time. Wow. And, and by the way, not only was he – was that how I knew him? Not only did I recognize this Colonel Fellini from Happy Days, but the name of the character that Ed Peck – Played on Happy Days. Are you ready for this? Mm-hmm. Police Officer Kirk. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> so you know how what I always think of Ed Peck is every time I see him, and not just how he looks, but his voice, I think that is the actor who is not Robert Stack. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're right. There is a similarity there. It just always reminded me of Robert Stack from one of your favorite movies, Airplane. So, <laughs> Surely uh, you can't be serious. <laughs> I am serious. And stop calling Ed Peck Shirley. Um, <laughs> so we're, Kirk is – we're just about finishing up. Kirk leaves Sulu, goes out to the other room, and just as he walks out, there is Colonel Fellini and a bunch of guards – and Kirk very smoothly, before they see him, closes the door on Sulu, and then we get this fight scene. You know, we talked about some of the good fight scenes and some of the bad fight scenes. This might be the – it's certainly the best one we've had so far. And it might be Kirk's best fight scene in all of Star Trek. I had to, like, really think about that. Obviously, fighting Khan and Space Seed is one of the best ones too. But this one is so inventive in the way he fights. Why, why do you think – what makes the scene invented? By the way, I agree with you, and I think one of the reasons for the success of this fight, the way it's choreographed, is I'm pretty sure that that's Shatner the whole time. Like I don't think that's a stunt person. It sure looks like him, and there's there's a, so many interesting moves. So he slams a guy into the reels, and then he's kind of surrounded by two guys. He has to duck under them to get out. He grabs, gets grabbed from behind, and he rolls as the other guy flies over him. That's a complicated, multiple-person moves. Then he gets the door, grabs on, pulls himself up. A guy goes under him. He leapfrogs another guy. I mean, all the moves are really, really interesting. That's know? a really good point. And the reason that he is making as much noise as possible mm -hmm. is so that Mr. Sulu, who is in the other room with all the tapes, knows well enough to get out of there and beam back to the Enterprise, which he does. And they finally subdue Kirk and ask, where's the <laughs> other one? And he goes, one of them. Your partner, I saw you looking that way and I saw somebody move in there. No, 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 no. Just me. Besides, could anyone get out of here without you seeing them? And, of course, that's perfectly true. There is no way that anyone should have been able to get out of there. But the response that uh, uh, Colonel Fellini says, no, no one should have been able to. And then that guilty smile, that <laughs> guilty smirk that that Kirk, you know, his hair's all messed up. He just just basically fought three guys on his own and held them off pretty good. Just that really sort of like guilty, mischievous smile that Shatner gives him. Again, Shatner just is he's, he's a genius. He just played that so perfectly. Well, it's what that's what's so interesting that this is the same actor doing the crazy stuff in Enemy Within, the serious stuff of Balance of Terror. Like mm -hmm. there's just like and now he's playing this light sort of fun stuff. We're back up in the briefing room. And again, we're going to have to get some exposition out, but. We do it with conflict with McCoy arguing with Spock so that it becomes much more interesting. Blast your theories and observations, Mr. Spock. What about Jim? He's down there alone, probably under arrest. He doesn't have a communicator and we can't locate him or beam him back aboard without one. Now, that's a line of pure exposition. But because it's delivered in a conflict between McCoy and Spock, it's really interesting and fun. You know, whereas you could have just had someone say all that same information. I never thought about that, Steve. I just thought that he was just expressing his feelings. But well, you're is. right. That is absolutely exposition. But that's why it's good writing. You know, is that is that the this is just something I talk about all the time teaching, but is I call it burying the exposition. How do we hide it? And the <laughs> easiest way to hide it is always through conflict. 
if two people are arguing about a truth, that is an interesting scene rather. And if you see it and this is because Star Trek has to deal with more crappy exposition than almost any show, because it's always like, well, if we reverse polarity on the deflector, sh- you know, th- dish, then we can. And it's all th- meaningless. None of it means anything. It's like, oh, mm-hmm. well, the dilithium crystals are polarized for the, And it's all again, we're just making up words. And so the more you can bury it within character, within conflict, things like that, it it becomes less, much less noticeable. And we all can think of scenes in Star Trek where it's just like blah, 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 blah for five minutes, you know. I got to tell you, you know, when you get to some of the later shows and they get into all that techno babble, I I mean, I hate to say it, but when they get to those moments and they're talking about the quantum singularity on the event horizon, uh, you know, with the paradox and the the temporal rift, and I I just like, what? But the way they made it work on the original series, they kept all that to a minimum, you know, they kept it all within human reaction without getting going too far into the techno babble. And I was always, you know, as it turned out, always grateful that the writers of the original series never felt like they had to cover up anything or 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 rely on that kind of talk to make the episode work within the framework of science fiction. Well, I think the key to it is that is you have to remind when writing this kind of stuff for me, you have to remind yourself that this is all BS science. It's not real science. And so if you're making the like in the Martian, the Martian is hard science, science fiction. And so it is really interesting having him calculate the math of exactly how much you know, urine he has to use in order to get the ammonia to grow the potatoes to have enough calories. That's actually really interesting because he's doing real science. With Star Trek, it's all fake science. And if we're spending a whole bunch of time explaining science that doesn't exist in order to explain a process that someone has to do that doesn't really make any sense and is non-dramatic, you're in deep trouble. Mm-hmm. You know, absolutely. Is that mm-hmm. if, if the point is that Kirk has to crawl through a thing that's really dangerous to do a thing, that's interesting. It isn't interesting interesting what the thing is you know what i mean absolutely and the other thing is that it's all about character and story the science is a mechanism to get us to character and story it's not the goal okay and so it's like you know it's just a conversation you and i have all the time and a slight digression is like I want to give all the information we're going to give about Star Trek but if you and i aren't having an interesting conversation all that information is going to be boring Absolutely. You're right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It can't just be information. If you wanted just information, you could just, you could go to memory alpha right now and read a whole bunch of information about an episode or, or get, you know, a book and read all of it, but you wouldn't have our sparkling personalities having an enjoyable (laughs) conversation about this. Let's interrogate James T. Kirk. (laughs) This scene, the interrogation of James T. Kirk is one of my favorite scenes in all of Star Trek. I want to know how you got in here. Now that's a simple question. Give me a simple answer. Nobody saw you. You got all the way inside here without tripping any alarm. How did you do it? Believe me, Colonel, you wouldn't believe me. What I love about this scene is that while they're interrogating Kirk, Kirk is giving him the truth. He's mm-hmm. telling him the truth. Now, don't try to be funny. How did you get in? I popped in out of thin air. Shatner is walking a fine line between treating the situation as seriously as it is and clearly being <laughs> rather amused by it. Like, am I really being interrogated? I'm a, I'm the captain of a friggin' starship and there are only 12 like it in the fleet. 
And here I am being interrogated by this guy from the 20th century. You have no idea who you're dealing with, bucko. <laughs> what would you have done if we hadn't found you? Believe me, Colonel, nothing at all. Is that what you're here for? Nothing at all? That's what would have happened if you hadn't interfered. Well, this is what's so funny about it. And I think it totally works. And it also doesn't make perfect sense because the fact that he's the captain of an enterprise and there are only 12 like it in the fleet, and he knows a million things this guy doesn't know, doesn't change the fact that he is unarmed. <laughs> this guy is playing with a phaser. <laughs> they yeah. have guns. And the thing is, is Fellini, again, it's he's not a bad guy because he is in charge of this Air Force base, which is this is the middle of the Cold War and some stranger has broken into their top secret facility. This is a really, really big deal. And this guy is acting like it's no big deal. I mean, there, there's no <laughs> reason that Kirk shouldn't believe that he could be killed or tortured or handcuffed or taken away or anything. I mean, this is a really bad situation at this moment. All right, Kirk, maybe this will make you laugh. Sabotage, espionage, unauthorized entry, burglary. How are those for starters? And I can think of lots more if you don't start talking. And I love things like... All right, Colonel, the truth is I'm a little green man from Alpha Centuria. A beautiful place, you ought to see it. And then his response, what Colonel Fellini says to Kirk. I am going to lock you up for 200 years. And Kirk breaks the fourth wall. He breaks the fourth wall. I'm pretty sure that, that, that has never happened in the original series. And he goes, That ought to be just about right. What a perfect joke. That's it's, awesome. It's great. It is a fantastic joke. And now we're in the briefing room with Christopher, who's kind of describing all of the security stuff and where he thinks he'll be. And he could give him the exact coordinates, but... But you're not going to get them unless you take me with you. Uh, see, now this is an interesting moment. And again, everything that you were talking about before with regards to Christopher observing and absorbing and watching him grow and, and showing his capabilities to basically be a good match for Captain Kirk. This is the scene where Captain Christopher pulls the Corbomite maneuver. This is the yep. scene where Captain Christopher is basically saying, all right, you want my help? You got to take me with you. I can't do that, Captain. If something went wrong, something's already gone wrong. Of course, you could beam down anywhere inside that base, but it would take time to find it. So now there's a little bit of a battle of wits going on between Christopher and Spock. And Christopher is holding his own with Spock in a way that only Captain Kirk can hold his own with Spock. The evolution of Christopher throughout this episode – being a man out of time in more ways than one when he is beamed onto that transporter platform. And now he is challenging this very alien first officer. Uh, I just think that Roger Perry's performance in Tomorrow's Yesterday is absolutely superb. And the way the character was written by Dorothy Fontana with, with the touch-ups from Gene Kuhn, I just think that this is, this is what you want to see in a guest star you want to see you want to see an arc you want to see evolution you want to see growth and i think that we've seen that with captain christopher brilliantly played by roger perry i so love that you said that and you've made me think about this in a different way cuz i just suddenly went as you were speaking what if captain kirk got beamed up to some strange ship 
And what would he have done? And the answer is he would have done almost exactly what Captain Christopher does. How many situations is it where Kirk finds himself in a thing, whether it's what are little girls made of or uh, Squire of Gothos or where he is outmatched and slowly but surely he observes. And then we watch, He, you know, he makes the physical break to escape like he does in what little girls are made of. And then he does the bigger, more manipulative moves later on. He's doing exactly what Captain Christopher is doing here. If if Captain Christopher was the captain of the Enterprise in an episode like A Taste of Armageddon, mm-hmm. you know, that scene towards the end of the episode where he he's being held captive and breaks free, that is exactly what Christopher would have done in the situation that Captain Kirk did the exact same thing. What we are seeing in Tomorrow is Yesterday, and it took decades for me to realize this, is that Captain Christopher is absolutely a worthy match to Captain Kirk. And they have a whole lot more in common than I think I ever gave this episode credit for. You know, it'd be really fun. And if anyone wanted to pay me to write this, I would, is that (laughs) it'd be really fun to do an episode similar to this, except stay entirely in Captain Christopher's point of view, which is you show up knowing nothing. You know, it's, it's the enterprise. So the audience understands everything that's going on, but you only stay with him. You'd never see things outside of what he sees and have him slowly figure out what's going on. That would be a that would be a very interesting episode of Star Trek. Um, the final moment, though, which we mentioned before, is that we say, "Okay, Christopher can beam down with us." Sulu asks, "Shall I issue phasers?" Spock's reply: "One for you, one for me. Set them on heavy stun force." Yes, sir. And Christopher walks up with a big smile to Spock and says, "You don't trust me, Spock. In fact, I do." But only to a certain point. And the look that they give each yes. other is so great. Like, like, okay, Christopher, you think you're you got the cards, but you don't. Um, Mr. Spock, I've got the cards here. I think at this point, I think we've nailed Mr. Spock. Like, you know what I mean? Like, there's so many. I mean, I think Nimoy was great right in where no man was gone before and they had pieces of him. But yeah. I think now it's all kind of come together. And that moment is really intimidating. You know, like Spock <laughs> is a guy you do not want to mess with now. We're in the transporter room. I love that Spock has to guide Christopher to be in the right spot. And they they beam down. And then we have a little comedy bit where we talk to the, the uh, security guy they beamed up and ask if he's hungry and get him some chicken <laughs> soup. This is the first time that we've actually seen that there is a food synthesizer in the transporter room. <laughs> Which I don't quite know why it's there, but, you know, it's nice to have. Sure. Um, we're down on the airbase. The three of them are moving in the shadows. Sulu does a karate chop. I hate the, <laughs> I hate the 60s karate chop. I just yeah, this I idea there's some, like, weird thing that people go, ha, ah, I don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> Spock does a FVNP. Fellini draws his gun, but Kirk, with his magical feet, kicks the gun away. Uh, it punches out Fellini. Don't you find that painful, Captain? Yes, I do. What's he doing here? He knew the exact beam-down coordinates for this section of the base. It was necessary to bring him along. I see. Well, no harm done. And he's going to do stuff with Sulu and talking. And Spock has moved into another room. And we watch Christopher grab a gun from one of the unconscious guards. Mr. Sulu, signal the transporter chief. Four to beam up. Yes, sir. Uh-uh. <laughs> Not me. And Christopher is holding not a phaser set on stun, but a gun on Kirk and Sulu. And that brings us to the end of Act 3. Act 4, we come back right in the same spot. And Kirk says, 
Don't be a fool. You know what's at stake. You bet I do. My family. A son that isn't born yet. You don't have to return me now, Captain. And the thing is, Christopher is totally right. I think he is doing exactly the right thing for him. He doesn't know that their plan about time travel and putting him back. He doesn't know that's going to work. Odds are it's not going to work. He needs to get back to his family, have his son. His responsibility is to his time, not their time. Exactly. And to not just to his family and to his time, but to the United States uh, Air Force. (laughs) Um, And then Christopher, he's got two guys. He's got Sulu and Kirk. But Spock went into that other room. I love the whole way this is set up. Spock, come out of there. Christopher says, I told you, it's my duty to report everything I've seen. That's explanation enough. And again, he calls for Spock. Spock! Do you think Kirk knows Spock's plan and is purposely distracting Christopher in this scene at this moment? Well, I actually, it's a good question. I think that he does know because Spock is not in the room. And I think he's just trying to keep Christopher distracted so Spock can come up to him and give him the FSNP, the famous Spock neck pinch. And the way, I love the way they shoot it, which is you see Spock coming in out of focus. Out of focus, Christopher yeah. in focus. It's a great way that it's set up. And now we and now we beam up. We are back on the ship. And again, we're in the briefing room. And we're talking about, again, this is the techno babble stuff, which is there's a slingshot effect. And we're going to go faster towards the sun. And as we do it, we're going to go backwards in time. And we'll go back before it was yesterday, before we first appeared. And then we turn around to shoot us forward. And we're going to somehow put everything to right as we're going forward. Okay, here, here's something interesting. So... In the beginning of the episode, we've established that the, the man moonshot was going to happen on Wednesday. So, so that would mean that this episode takes place in 1969. Okay. Now, mm-hmm. the Enterprise used the light speed breakaway at the end of the second season in Assignment Earth. So, in Assignment Earth, the Enterprise went back in time to 1968. So, if you look at it this way, in Tomorrow is Yesterday, the Enterprise is basically at Earth in the, of the past for the second time because the Enterprise had used the light speed breakaway that they're describing in this very scene to go back in time to 1968. So when the Enterprise is in orbit around the Earth at the beginning of uh, Tomorrow's Yesterday, the Enterprise had actually already been there the year before. Try wrapping your head around Whoa, that. that is that's some crazy, crazy stuff. <laughs> but the big thing that Scotty is concerned about isn't going forward. It's stopping. If I can't stop us soon enough, we may overshoot our time. And if I stop the engine suddenly, the strain may tear us apart. And either way, it means a mighty rough ride. <laughs> yep. Um, So we pull away from Earth, and I think this is where the enhanced effects really shines. Because the difference between the enhanced effects and the other effects is the uh, the old effects are just like, here's a picture of the Enterprise in space. The enhanced effects are dramatic. They have speed. They have acceleration. They have things moving closer in the frame. They have emotional energy to them in the way the original effects do not. There's no question about it. The enhanced effects, it it just makes... The episode's so much better. But here's the thing. So we see the Enterprise leave Earth, okay? And we're on the bridge of the Enterprise. And Captain Christopher is looking around. He's looking around the bridge. What do you think he's thinking? Well, I think he says it. He says, I never thought I'd make it into space. I mean, that's what an amazing moment. He is the first human to go into space. Okay, there's there's a lot going on here. 
And I think there's more to it than just that. Hmm. First of all, I think you're right. I mean, obviously, yeah, he's thinking, wow, I never thought I would get into space. I think he's also thinking that like, I better, I want to, you know, since I've been here, I haven't really taken any of this. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. You know, he's looking around, like taking one last look to try and take it in because he also knows that if this all works, if this light speed breakaway to go back in time again to fix the problem works, then he is not going to remember any of this. Now, here's the other thing. Here's the other thing that Captain Christopher is thinking. This takes place in the late 60s, right? Mm -hmm. And he is, Captain Christopher, part of the U.S. military. Right. At a time when the Cold War is going on, when Vietnam is going from bad to worse. And here he is on a starship in the 23rd century. Mm. I think he's looking around thinking like, like, yeah, wow. Yeah, we're going to make it. We're going to be all right. We're going to get past all of this. And we're going to evolve and flourish. And I think he's thinking also on those terms that his experiences in the military, which are just like, you know, all this bad news. And here he is looking like I'm in the 23rd century on a 23rd century starship. And this thing is amazing. So I think there's a lot going on that he's thinking of so much, but ultimately he's not going to remember any of it. Right. It's, it's so funny. I, I'm really glad you brought that up. I hadn't quite thought of it in that way. And what I think is so great about it, because we said Christopher sort of represents us. And wouldn't it be cool if we got to be on the Starship Enterprise? Well, you know, the idea, the classic Roddenberry idea that the future is hopeful is that that we're going to things are going to get better and we're going to evolve. I think I hadn't thought about it, but in a lot of ways, this is the perfect example. This is like where the message is delivered in a weird way because Christopher is us and we are looking around. And I think it's so important. I don't like the flirty computer bit, but I think showing that Kirk, the captain of the ship, is so human is what seals the deal. It's like, oh, we are out in space. We have solved all these problems. We didn't destroy ourselves and we are still recognizably human. But also, I think that he's watching this crew work together to correct the problem. Meanwhile, he's on the bridge. He's staying, he's wearing a, you know, the, the, a captain's, you know, tunic. You know, he's wearing a gold shirt. You know, he looks like he could fit right in on the Enterprise, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So as we are hurtling towards the sun, as our speed is increasing beyond warp eight and eventually going off the charts, as we are, in fact, going to hurdle around the sun and go through time, I would like to talk briefly about something that we have never discussed on this show. And that is? Warp speed. Ooh. What is warp speed in your mind? How, how Does well, it connect any way to our world? Well, I think of warp speed. I think of traveling faster than the speed of light. Okay. Do you have, do you know, have any thoughts of why it might be called warp? No, I've really never thought about it. I Uh, thought it was something that Star Trek made up. I have thought a lot about it. I don't think it's just something Star Trek made up. I think they were onto an idea that does actually connect to real science and it even connects to time travel. And this Hmm. is what I, so imagine a, uh, a piece of paper, Okay, a piece of paper is two dimensional, right? So we have this two dimensional piece of paper and the shortest distance between any two points on the two dimensional piece of paper is a straight line, right? Mm -hmm. That's right. But 
But what the little creatures who are on the two-dimensional piece of paper don't know is that there are, in fact, three dimensions. They just can't see the third dimension. The third dimension of height that we can see, they can't see. And so now I have these two two-dimensional creatures on opposite sides of this piece of paper. And the straightest distance between them is, let's say it's eight inches, straight line. And now the three-dimensional creature folds the paper. They warp it, let's say. Now, what is the shortest distance between those two points? Suddenly, it's much closer. Right. So, so it's the shortest distance between the two points is no longer a straight line. Right. And that's what warp speed is. Yes. And uh, do you know what Einstein said in his theory of gravity? You know, he has uh, four big theories that came out when he was a patent clerk in the early 20th century. Do you know about his gravity theory? I know the theory of relativity, but I do not know the theory of gravity. Basically, the idea is that – because we go like, well, what is gravity? And, and you know, the basic definition is that the earth sucks. Um, <laughs> that the idea that any heavy object is going to attract other heavy objects. But what Einstein started to say is that what if what's really happening is the gravity, mass, warps space so that it's actually – if you – again, now we're three-dimensional creatures. If you imagine a fourth dimension – that we can't see because we don't know it, but it's actually bending space. Everywhere there's something really heavy or anywhere there's any object at all is bending space. And because it's bending space towards it, everything naturally falls in that direction. Even though we can't see the dimension that's making that happen, it exists. And there's an incredible example. If you, if you do a YouTube search for gravity visualized, there's a dude that puts a heavy object in a huge lycra fabric and then throws other objects around it and you see how they orbit it. Um, is that that is a two-dimensional version of showing gravity warp space. And I would love to put this link on our Facebook Facebook page. This is really interesting. Sure. So here's the thing. Do you know what some people speculate that fourth dimension is? What is it? Time. Oh. So we have warp speed to me has always been how much are you bending that piece of paper? How much are you warping space? Because through normal space, we can't go faster than the speed of light. But if we warp space somehow around our ship, now suddenly the straightest distance between two points is not a straight line and we can go faster than the speed of light. The more we warp it, the faster the warp speed. And if we warp it enough, we're, what are we moving through? We're moving through the fourth dimension of time. Wow. Okay, that's a lot of headspace, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I've been thinking about this for years, and I was waiting for a time to bring it up on Enterprise Incidents. And what I'm really curious about, because I am the farthest thing from a scientist, and I know there are people that are Star Trek fans that are real physicists, and I would oh, yeah. love to hear what they think warp speed is, and can we connect it in any way to our current understandings of how the universe works? Oh, that's a great question. Head to our Facebook page. If you are intrigued by this concept and you're a scientist and you are, especially if you were inspired to be a scientist because of Star Trek, what are your theories about everything that Steve just said? And Captain, notice the chronometers. They've started backward. Minute by minute, the speed of time passage will now increase. Get your gear, report to the transporter. I'm Captain Christopher. You only have about 15 years, so you better hurry. By the way, I probably would have sent him to the transporter room earlier. <laughs> we don't need to cut this thing that close. Approaching breakaway point on the countdown. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5. It's all really dramatic. It's all really exciting. Now, Mr. Sulu. And then they're thrown forward and they're broken free. And again, the warp speed goes off the charts. 
Kirk calls down to the transporter room. It's a tiny detail, but I love that Captain Christopher knows the button on the the console to touch to answer Kirk's call. Okay, I'm glad you brought that up because remember what you said at the top of this conversation with regards to the way that Captain Christopher has been absorbing and observing and about how, you know, Captain Christopher maybe is a really good match Mm -hmm. for Captain Kirk. This is the moment. Okay, when Christopher first beamed aboard the Enterprise, he didn't know front from back. Yeah. He didn't know the bow of the stern to the to the the starboard side to the you know he didn't know any of that. But now by the end of the episode, instead of waiting for someone to answer Captain Kirk's hail by pushing the button, Captain Christopher walks down off the transporter platform to the transporter console and answers the captain's hail himself. Yep. Why did he do that? Because he observed. And he absorbed a lot more than anyone realized, including Captain Kirk. And we also realize that he is much more like Captain Kirk than anyone gave him credit for, because like Captain Kirk, Captain Christopher is a nerd, and he picked (laughs) up on the science. He picked up on a lot of the technical aspects of the Enterprise, but he figured out how certain things worked just on his brief time being there. And just when you look at the evolution of where Christopher was when he beamed on the Enterprise to where he is when he's about to beam off the Enterprise, this is a character who has grown and this is a character who has shown himself to be very, very much like a 20th century version of James T. Kirk. Totally agree. And I know maybe there are people listening or at this point, probably they'd stop listening, who think that we go (laughs) into way too much detail and focus on things that are really, really, really small. And is this moment really small? Yes, it is. It is really small moments, the cumulative effect of a 100,000 little small moments that make for good art. And so this moment, because to me, it means everything you just said. The other thing it means to me is that a ship is a ship is that even even though it might look at first glance to be technologically totally impossible to understand, if you observe enough, it's like, oh, you want to talk in the communicator, you flip that switch. And Christopher is going to figure it out. I think, by the way, they talk about him, he never could really be retrained for the 23rd century. I totally think he could. I think oh, he absolutely. could absolutely handle it. And he could have been retrained. He just wasn't going to forget about his family. Of course. That was the problem. Uh, Captain, thanks for the look ahead. Our pleasure, Captain. Good job. And we beam him, and this is just a strange and bizarre idea, which I don't think bears too much scrutiny, which is we're back on the jet, and they essentially beam him directly into himself. Okay, now, let, 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 here, here's the thing. I agree with you. I think if you really think about the, the science of it, uh, it it's kind of hard to wrap your head around no. it, and it probably doesn't make much sense. But here's, here's the thing that I love about this moment. So when we're back in that scene where Captain Christopher is seeing the Enterprise from the cockpit of his jet, he looks up and he sees the Enterprise. At that moment, in orbit around the Earth, is the Enterprise. Yes. So at that moment, there are two versions of the Enterprise on the same plane of existence. And it is only when they beam Captain Christopher back into himself that the the enterprise that was there is gone. Christopher has no memory of anything, and they've fixed one of the two biggest mistakes of their own time travel. But 
for that moment when he says, you should be close enough for visual contact, and Christopher is looking up and he sees the Enterprise, there's another Enterprise out in space getting ready to fix this. So this is why none of this really makes sense. And this is, and of course, any t- any time travel story is going to have problems. It's like, well, you said there are two Enterprises. What happened to the Enterprise that Captain Christopher was looking at when it disappeared? It just disappeared. Why? It just it, well, uh, that's a great question. Why did it disappear? Because because the timeline was corrected because he was put back. That's that's what I'm going with, and I think yeah, that I don't, I don't think it makes sense. I, it doesn't make sense. It, it absolutely doesn't. Well, and make the sense. idea that okay, you beam this person back in time. Well, what happened to the Captain Christopher from that time when the Captain Christopher from the Enterprise? Because what I actually here's what I think happened. I think we just killed the Captain Christopher. We either killed the Captain Christopher who had been on the Enterprise, or we killed the Captain Christopher that hadn't been on the Enterprise. Because at the moment, at that moment, there are two Captain Christophers. That's right. And You're right. The, was, and the one that was, ends up on the jet doesn't remember going on the Enterprise. So what the, you know they could have done is they could have just, you know, beamed that Captain Christopher into space. You know, wow, that would have been really cruel. Terrible. (laughs) (laughs) But the way that they solved the problem doesn't make sense. And if you scrutinize it or try to figure it out, you're never going to. But I still think that it's really interesting that for that moment, after the Enterprise goes back in time again, that there are now, on, on that timeline, there are two versions of the Enterprise, two versions of Kirk and Spock and Captain Christopher and everybody. Well, and it's interesting too that like, because again, time travel just is in the it's never going to work long term. Like the stories are always going to kind of fall in on themselves. And that what basic Star Trek time travel rules were is there's one timeline, and so that if you change something in the past, change something in the future. Then when you get to Star Trek Four, you have Scotty saying, "Well, who knows? He might have invented the thing," you know, which is saying which goes more into the destiny, like Terminator time rules is that there's a destiny. It's all going to happen. We can't stop it. We can't change it. It's all, everything is repeating. Then what's interesting is then in 2009 Star Trek, we kind of say there's multiverse time travel rules, which is, which is there was a whole normal Jim Kirk timeline. And then there's also in addition, a parallel timeline, which is the Kelvin timeline. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, I, and I think that, that when they are at the point where they're ready to beam the, uh, Air Force captain back to his time. So when we first see him approaching the uh, statistical room, Mm -hmm. Kirk and Sulu are already in that room. They're in the room looking for the tapes. So again, you have two versions of the Enterprise in existence Mm -hmm. because the other Enterprise was in orbit and there could have been a chance where the Enterprise bumped into itself because you have two versions of the Enterprise on the same timeline. I mean, just thinking about all this stuff can give you a real headache. But when they when they beam the Air Force captain back into his body, the versions of Kirk and Sulu that were in the room are no longer there because they've beamed the Air Force captain back and corrected the timeline. Again, I don't know how that makes any sense, but it works. And now all the Enterprise has to do is – is speed ahead to its own its own time in but, the 23rd century. But if they had they had to have been there because if they hadn't been there, then they wouldn't have gotten the photography from the jet unless he hadn't turned on the photography or radio transmissions yet. Here's a, here's a question. It's completely silly, but this will be a noodle scratcher for everybody. 
The guard beams back down into his body. Inside his stomach is their chicken soup. Oh, oh, wow. That's a great question. That's a good noodle. Speaking of chicken. <laughs> Speaking of chicken. <laughs> but we've successfully beamed this guy down, and now we are heading off. We're going forward in time. This is all working really well, and then we got to reverse our engines. And this is, I don't know what is the biggest everyone thrown across the bridge of the Enterprise scene in all of Star Trek, but this one's real big. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, the, the chaos on the bridge of the Enterprise, you know, shifting left to right, people being thrown around, you know, again, all go, the lights. Seatbelts. Why are there yeah. no seatbelts? <laughs> yeah, well, that's, uh, that's you know, the, the, the only time I saw a seatbelt with regards to Star Trek was on the, uh, the early one sheet, the early movie poster for Star Trek V that had a picture of a movie theater with a seatbelt. And saying they're installing seatbelts in movie theaters for for Star Trek V: The Final Frontier. So, well, it doesn't. Uh, Sulu on the Excelsior have like a little thing that folds down over his oh, legs. So does Captain Kirk in Star Trek: The Motion Picture. Oh, that's right. Yeah, this yeah, is that something, thing's been there. It's so funny. It's like we figured out seatbelts in the fifties. <laughs> like, it seems like a no brainer. But after after this sequence, everything stabilizes, and we hear almost immediately from Starfleet Control. Starfleet Control calling Enterprise. Come in, Enterprise. And we're back. Yeah. Except there's just one thing. The Enterprise computer is still flirty. Record ship arrival, dear. <laughs> Which we will never, ever visit again. <laughs> we hear that it would take three days in space dock to fix it, but... Apparently they got they took care of it, and but that yeah. is the end of tomorrow is yesterday. And uh, once again, I find this episode to be even more fascinating after this conversation. I just think that the the big takeaway for me here is the evolution of Captain Christopher, realizing that he is much closer to Captain Kirk. They are definitely sort of kindred spirits from different times. And uh, it is still an episode that just brings a smile to my face. And look, you know, we talked about the original special effects and James Doohan even commented, and I quote, the special effects, shaking the ship slightly, that sort of thing seemed primitive compared to what you see nowadays. But back then we were cutting edge. You know, Dorothy Fontana, who wrote the episode said, what I liked about it best was that everything that Kirk does which was by the book and exactly the right thing to do was the wrong thing to do until about the middle when Kirk starts putting it all together to make it right. But I had a chance to have a little fun with it, particularly with Kirk, because you knew Shatner could play comedy. The director of the episode, Michael O'Hurley, said, I rather like the script. I'm not a science fiction fan. But even I could relate to it and understand it. And I think that that is a key to so much of the reason that Star Trek touched so many people was because we could understand it. And Roger Perry, who played Captain Christopher, had this little story to tell about his time on Star Trek. He said, I was talking to DeForest Kelly about my shirt. And I said, I kind of like this. I wonder if I could take it home. And he said, well, they kind of frown upon that, <laughs> but you could probably stick it in your bag and nobody's going to say anything. Guess what? I didn't. But looking back with all that Star Trek had become, 
I wish I had. <laughs> Bet. Absolutely. <laughs> um, I'm like you, Scott. I always like the episode. And after this conversation, I like it even more. And the thing I've been thinking about is we've had so many episodes where we're up against something way more powerful than us, whether it's the Telosians or Gary Mitchell or Trelane or Charlie X. They're, they're all these episodes where we're facing something really, really big. And there are all these episodes that are sort of mysteries. What's going on with what little girls are made of? What's happening on the shore leave planet? This is much more of an adventure, like a fun adventure. Like, here's our problem, and we have to sneak around. We have to fight people. We have to do all these tricks. We have to do all this stuff in order to solve the problem. And it is so much fun. And it, once again, the thing that we said over and over again, it just demonstrates how flexible Star Trek is and can still feel like Star Trek. Plus, it is the classic jewel of an idea. What if the Enterprise showed up today? That is a perfect science fiction concept, and they execute it really well. They execute it so well. It is such a, just a wonderful, delightful, fun, entertaining. It's moving to the extent that Captain Christopher wants to get back so he can conceive a son that will have a big impact uh, on the future. And I am in awe of the concept of looking up in the sky yeah. and seeing the Enterprise. That's a, something this episode just uh, leans into that fascination and that awe-inspiring wonder so, so very well. I love the comedy. I think that the chemistry between the main characters is great. I think Roger Perry was a terrific guest star. And uh, I loved our conversation, uh, all that stuff about time travel and warp speed. Definitely uh, a lot to think about. And what a fun conversation. And I, I just uh, you know would love to hear what you thought of our conversation. Please head over to our Facebook page enterprise incidents let us know and also make sure you follow us on twitter at enter incidents and on instagram at enterprise incidents steve where can people follow you well they can follow me at sr morris on twitter sr morris one on instagram and if you're interested in movies that deal with time travel you could go to the cinephile c-i-n-e-f-i-l-e-s where we've done both terminator one and terminator two and arguably our funniest episodes of all time is our two-part episodes on Back to the Future. But if you're more into NASA and space travel, well, we've also done The Right Stuff, Apollo 13. And if you want a more, let's say, unrealistic uh, version of space travel, you can check out our very funny episode on Armageddon. Oh, Scott, how would people reach you? Okay, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Movie Mance. You can check out my YouTube channel, Scott Mance. But most importantly, I would really, we would really love it if you would ask fellow Star Trek fans to share Enterprise incidents. We are so happy and thrilled by the amazing feedback, by the amazing reviews that we've been getting, especially on Apple Podcasts. So if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please write a review. And if you are listening elsewhere, please head over to Apple Podcasts and write a review because that's really how we kind of get out there and get through the clutter of all the other Star Trek podcasts, a lot of them which are really good. But, you know, we would love for more people to hear and to know about Enterprise Incidents. And next time on Enterprise Incidents, well, we hope you will be of the body and that joy and peace and contentment will be with you as we are with Landrew on the return of the Archons. That is going to be a very 
interesting deep dive conversation. Till the next Enterprise Incidents, please keep going boldly.